Several years ago, I was moving to a new city. I moved to Houston, Texas, and because I was relocating there, I needed to find a gym for the first time in my life. And so I went to go to look at a variety of gyms, and this was kind of at the beginning of the big fitness craze where you had these huge gyms that were competing with all of these different amenities. And one of the gyms that I went to was called the Q Sports Club. It had this massive parking lot, guest parking right up front, huge facility that looked like it could be a university, and yet it was a gym. And when you went inside, it felt like you were more working out at a fraternity house with its thumping music and its blaring kind of young clientele. It was a really intimidating and amazing thing. And of course, you know to the gym, the gym is the place where you go where you self-induce pain in order to be healthy and happy with your life. You know that, right? So anyhow, I go to this gym and I get a tour, and there is a guy who is leading this tour who is so muscular and so ripped, you just, you started to feel sorry for his tight t-shirt. And he's showing me around the club and all of the new and the latest and greatest equipment, but particularly all the different perks of the club. There was the spa, there was the locker room area, there was the cafe area where you could eat food that was good for you but probably tasted awful. And you would do all these favorite amenities. And then the other thing that he said was, he said, my favorite amenity at the club is that we offer free valet parking. And I looked at him and I said, you offer valet parking? And he goes, yes, we do. I said, let me, let me understand this correctly. People come here in order to burn calories and to exercise, but you incentivize them for parking as close as possible to the front door so they might not overexert themselves before getting in. He's like, exactly. You're totally understanding the situation. And I'll never forget what he said. He said as a follow-up, he said, Hey, even in the fitness business, it's all about convenience. Starting a couple of decades ago, a handful of retailers got together and determined that one of the ways in order to increase profitability and sales was to make the process of you shopping easier. So they invented a whole new kind of shopping experience and store. It's called a convenience store. And they built the science behind this in order to try to get you in the store, purchasing something and out of the store in four minutes or less. This is the strategic breakdown of what they're going for at a typical convenience store. 35 seconds for you to walk from your car to the inside of the store. 71 seconds to select the items that you are going to buy, 42 seconds to wait in line in order for you to purchase, 21 seconds for you to pay, and 44 seconds for you to leave. This is their goal, and they realize that if they can get you in and they can get you out, that they can have their profits and uh, everything go really, really well. And this mindset that started with the convenience store really started to take off. Back in the early 1990s, there was a little coffee company called Starbucks that convinced you and me that we could not live without $3 coffee. 
which I'm sure would drive my grandparents crazy because coffee was something you paid 10 cents for at a local diner. But not only was this coffee craze taking off and then you thought at some point it was going to level off, then Starbucks invented the drive-through $3 Frappuccino whipped something or other that you could now drive through. In Southern California in 1994, they put in the first Starbucks with a drive-through and within a couple of months, it was the highest grossing Starbucks in the country. Not by a little bit, but by a lot. The article I read said 50% more profits all because they made it easier for you and me to get the $3 coffee that we crave. Have you noticed that even in this area that Starbucks are closing and reopening with drive throughs just to make it easier for us? Atlanta's own Frank Blake, the former CEO of Home Depot, said there are no more frightening words in the retail business than the phrase, hey Alexa. Hey Alexa, bring me some paper towels. And magically, four hours later, your favorite brand of paper towels show up at your front doorstep. And also, just to be clear, magically, they charge your credit card, lest you think that it's all done by magic. All of this is to say is that we live in a convenience-obsessed age. And I want you to hear from me right at the outset as I kind of broach this subject, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with convenience, that I don't want to wait in in lines any longer than you do. Certainly, I don't like shopping, and I don't want to spend any more time shopping than you do. But what happens is, is that this mindset of us actually making everything as efficient as possible can leak over into our souls and into our spiritual lives where we think that everything, everything is to be done by convenience. Even your spiritual life, even your church life, the consuming nature of our society is starting to consume us. We're in the midst of a series called Jailbreak where we're looking at four different scenes in the book of Acts where we're talking about different ways in which the gospel could not be bound, couldn't be hindered, and that the gospel breaks out. And we've looked at two very dramatic scenes, one in the life of Peter a couple of weeks ago, and then also one in the life of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to continue with a jailbreak scene in the life of the Apostle Paul. This one is much later in Paul's life. It's a very different kind of jail scene. Paul found his way to Jerusalem, and having been in Jerusalem, he was accused of being a rabble-rouser and a troublemaker, and so he was arrested. And they were even afraid to incarcerate him in the incendiary city that was and is Jerusalem, and so they relocate him to a much more secure location along the coast. And while he is there... This is what happens. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. And when Lysias, the commander, comes, he says, I will decide your case, he says to the Apostle Paul. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. 
And several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him, and he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul talked about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. And at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. And so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. And when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. I want to introduce you today to a lesser known character from the Bible. His name is Antonius Felix, and he ruled this portion of Israel from 52 to 59 AD. He was known as a corrupt but very efficient politician. He got the role because his brother was one of the best friends of Caesar, and in this role, Felix was tough on crime. He was known to be able to get rid of some of the bandits and some of the criminals that were taking this. And because of this, he hated people who disturbed the peace. And Paul, the apostle, was very much the kind of person that drove Felix crazy and made his approval rating so high. And so he put Paul from Jerusalem under lock and key, but did not do so in Jerusalem, but in this location, actually where Felix lived. This is along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This is known as Caesarea by the Sea. It was built by none other than Herod the Great. That's Herod the Great who was alive during the birth of Jesus, who slaughtered thousands of infant lives in order to try to stop Jesus before he could even get started. And in this beautiful yet haunting setting, Paul is incarcerated and kept in jail. Drusilla, which is Felix's wife, is Jewish. So Felix is Roman. Drusilla, I know this is a lot of history, bear with me. Drusilla is Jewish, and she is related to the Herod family. And in fact, she is Herod the Great's granddaughter, and she is related to Herod Agrippa, who is the one who conspired with Pontius Pilate in order to have Jesus killed. Are you still tracking with me, or did I lose you in all of that history? In other words, Paul is incarcerated, imprisoned before the very powers and principalities who held him in check and attempted and murdered Jesus, his Lord. And yet in this place, Paul is not filled with rage or jealousy or revenge. He speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection. And you might wonder, what was Felix's response to being in the Apostle Paul's present and hearing of Jesus Christ. The response, two more years, two years of being locked up, put away, and prevented from living as a free man. 
bringing him out every once in a while to play philosophical ping pong with him, hoping that Paul could co-opt all of these churches that he had founded into raising some money and offering him a bribe, which Paul never does. And Felix responds to his encounter with the Apostle Paul in verse 25. I don't know if you noticed this haunting verse. Felix says, when I find it convenient, I will send for you. And before you're too hard on Antonius Felix in this story, is it possible that we're anything like him? I'll read the Bible when it's convenient. I'll pray when it's convenient. I'll be generous when it's convenient. I'll forgive that person when it's convenient. I'll love my neighbor when it's convenient. I'll spend time in community when it's convenient. I'll go to church when it's convenient. I'll love my enemies when it's convenient. Felix in Latin is a term that means happy. And before we judge Felix too much, are we any different than him in the sense of that we found and find that our identity and pleasure is found in happiness and not in a life in Christ? Functionally, do you operate more out of convenience or do you operate more out of the good news? Several years ago, Berkeley researchers decided that they were going to do an interesting experiment with these little guys, single-celled organisms known as amoebas. And their goal was that they were going to put these amoebas into the best possible environment that they could possibly do. They were going to have the ideal temperature. They were going to have a constant flow of nourishment. It was going to have just the right amount of moisture and oxygen and everything for them to be able to thrive. And so you might imagine that these amoebas were going to be the fattest, happiest amoebas on God's green earth. I mean, we're talking no heartburn, no performance reviews, no psychology or counseling or ulcers or anything. The problem is when they put the amoebas in the four-star, four seasons of Petri dishes that they always died. John Orberg, in reading upon this study in social science, put it this way. He said, comfort alone will kill us. There's nothing wrong with comfort. The problem is if you try to live for comfort, if you try to orient everything around comfort, eventually that turns in on itself and it doesn't give you life. It destroys you. Martin Luther King put it this way. He said, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and to avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the end of life, that the goal of life is not to be happy, to not maximize pleasure and minimize pain, but that the goal of life, the reason that you exist is for you to do what is right, come what 
May. This is the 100th anniversary of this man, Nelson Mandela. The 100th anniversary of his life. I was in South Africa for a time a little earlier this year, and there were all kinds of different, because of the milestone of 100 years of his life, there, um, they had all kinds of different magazines, articles, books, and there were a lot of things that I knew about Nelson Mandela. I knew about his childhood and how he had grown up and, um, as kind of the son of a chief and had had the opportunity to receive a fine education. I knew that he was a flawed and faithful figure, that he really struggled in his first marriage, and yet his second marriage gave him uh, great vitality during his life and his years. I knew that he was someone who both wanted to stand up for what was right, but also seemed to cross some lines in advocating for retribution or violence early on. I knew that he had been put in prison for a long, long time, and then eventually he became president and became one of the most iconic figures for civil rights in the 20th century. But you know something? I had always thought of Nelson Mandela and the way that he had always been portrayed to me was as kind of a secular warrior for civil rights. What I didn't know was anything about his soul, about his spiritual life. And so at an airport earlier this year, I picked up a copy of a book that was called The Spiritual Mandela where they talked about his life before God. That in his time when he was in prison, he was even a little bit of an artist, capturing, reflecting back on what it was like to live in that jail cell for 27 years. In this image, he talked about how everything, every single day had to be folded up and put away. The contrary messages of you'll never leave here but at the same time, you don't really belong here. You have to pack up every single day. But I came to discover that Nelson Mandela had a very personal faith, that he read the Bible every day, that he prayed every day, that he was the kind of person who gathered with other believers in jail and took the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or communion, and that he really relied on his faith through those 27 years, through the forced labor that he had to endure in the rock quarry that was so blinding in the South African sun that he started to lose his sight. And eventually when he was vindicated and when he was freed and about to be elected president, there was this beautiful little interaction that said this. Mr. Mandela, today is probably the most important day in your life. Today you become president of this country for the first time in 330 years we're going to have a democratically elected president. But I don't think you can do it on your own and I certainly don't think this country can do it on its own. Unless God is with you, it's not going to work. Would you mind before we have breakfast, if I read to you from the Bible, I will welcome that, Nelson Mandela said, for I am a Christian. 
What is it that can cause someone to endure 27 years in prison and not grow bitter and not lose hope? What is it that can cause someone to lose their physical eyesight and yet at the same time to also to be able to experience the vision of eternity? I believe it only happens when we have a vision for this. When we can see the cross, when we can see the church, when we can have our roots so deep in the soil of God's goodness that the bitterness and the anger and the retribution are nothing compared to the freedom that God has for us. There are two mistakes that we can make with today's passage. The first mistake that we can make with today's passage is that we can think of ourselves as any different from Antonius Felix, thinking that we can keep the gospel under lock and key, that we believe in God and we do so, but we do so only under the rubric of when it's convenient that we control it. But do you know the other mistake that we can make today? One of the mistakes that we can make is that we can read these fantastic stories that come to us from the book of Acts and, and we can misinterpret them as you know, these amazing dramatic jail stories where one person gets put into jail, another person immediately gets pulled out of jail, that you get into trouble and that God immediately pulls you out of that trouble and it's only when you later, when you mature in the book of Acts that you start to see the Apostle Paul in prison not going in and then immediately getting out, but he's there for two years, two years. Here's this man with this incredible reach, this incredible influence who has traveled all over the world, not only in the Middle East and other parts of Asia, but also all the way into Europe. And he has spread the gospel to all of these different places. And now here he is stuck, mired into this one place, stuck under the very regime that wanted to kill and to claim his Lord. And he is stuck there and he basically has a congregation of one one Roman leader who allows him to come out and talk with him a little bit and then put him back. Can you imagine the futility of being stuck like that? I imagine you can. I bet there are many people here who feel like that their life is a prison and that you've gotten into this situation and that you think that the gospel means that you're immediately supposed to get out of it, but God has you in this holding pattern, in this waiting pattern. Here's the deal. Sometimes you will find yourself imprisoned and God's redemption is not on your timetable. In reading this story, I can't help but think of the beloved friend for us in this congregation of Frank Skinner in his later years. And I can't help but think that as his body became for him a prison, that his soul was still so free. And how inspiring it was 
and it still is, to be reminded that even though our outer nature may waste away, even though it might not be on our timetable, God is faithful still. It was just a handful of weeks ago that Frank was my sponsor for getting into the downtown Rotary Club, one of the last and worst mistakes that Frank ever made, putting me forward for that. And that he was supposed to introduce me that day. And with his hunched frame and his inability to articulate like he used to because of the disease, I said, Frank, I'm so glad that you're here at the Rotary. Why aren't you going to introduce me? He had somebody else do it. He said, Pastor, because I didn't want this entire community to be introduced by someone who sounds like a drunken sailor. His body was imprisoned. But it didn't get to his soul. That he was still free. And so can you. Whatever it is that holds you fast, whatever it is that God has not redeemed for you yet, whatever loss or whatever fractured relationship or whatever disease or whatever it is that you are finding that holds you in, God's promises are still true even when you're in prison and even when you don't see a way out. Forget the formula but the promises are real. Don't ever forget that. It's not a life of convenience. It's a life of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the beauty, for the amenities of this world, for the incredible blessings that you've showered upon us. We even thank you for the conveniences of life, for technology that makes our lives better and for the way that we're able to improve not just our own life, but that of the life for others. But Father, forgive us for making convenience an idol for wanting everything to be more efficient and faster and assuming your promises work on the same timetable. God, if we're honest, we like to keep you like Felix. We like to keep the gospel under lock and key and only bring you out when it is convenient for us. Lord, there's no way that the resurrection can be treated that way. And so help us to pray, help us to read the Bible, help us to forgive, help us to be generous, help us to obey, not when it's convenient, but when it's your timing. Lord, help us to not seek comfort for its own sake in a stress-free life, but that the highest aim of life is to do what is right. Thank you for those who do not give up hope in the midst of imprisonment and for the inspiration of those who have gone before us where their eyesight begins to fail but not their eternal vision. And we pray all of these things 
and the strong and the mighty name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said,